You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, when I was in college, I would ride the bus from my apartment to my classes. And inevitably, I would always be on this one particular bus and the driver had a placard up above his head that had a list of rules. It said, I will not bite, I will not punch, I will not kick. But then underneath that list, it said, because I'm the bus driver. And then as if to drive it home, it repeated that statement, because I'm the bus driver. I'm the bus driver. And it became obvious if you read it, oh, it's a joke. Uh, But it was a joke that played off of a reality we all understood that our roles that we take on in life carry with them a certain responsibility. So by taking the role bus driver, I take on responsibilities, the least of which is that I will not bite the people on my bus. But all of us, as we enter in certain roles, whatever they may be, we take with them some requisite responsibilities. We all believe that. Certain identities take on certain activities. Who we are informs what we do. And I say all that because that's where we are in the book of First Peter. First Peter is a manifesto to the people of the Messiah, the guiding principles to the people of God. Let's say if we believe we have a relationship with God through Jesus, it affects how we live in the world. This new role carries with it new responsibilities. This identity has expected activities. Because I've been his child, now I live like it. And our activity proceeds for that identity. And so we started that last week. And as our key text, we grabbed 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Live as people who are free. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. And then he gives us these guiding parameters. As servants of God, we honor everyone. And now today, we love the brotherhood. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was set free from slavery, they suddenly had freedom from the tyranny of the Pharaoh. But now the question was to them, how do we use that freedom? Do we just all do whatever we feel like doing and take advantage of each other? There'd be anarchy out here in the desert? Or do we as a community decide with this new liberty, we will now use it to build a beautiful society where we don't use each other, we serve each other. We create an environment where everyone can win. And that's what they did. That's what we're meant to do. As people who've been liberated by God, free from the condemnation of our sin, free from trying to earn approval and acceptance. We're free because of the grace of Jesus. Now, how do we live? Fulfilling our selfish desires or serving the God who set us free? And we believe what Bob Dylan sang, you're gonna serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna serve somebody. And our freedom is that we've changed masters to a God who loves us and gave his life for us. And so we live as servants to God. And how do you serve God? By loving what he loves. And he loves people. So to serve God means I honor everyone. Whether you agree with me or not, I honor you because you're made in his image. And now today we got our second guiding principle. And we love the brotherhood. I honor everybody, but there's a particular class of people that I set my unique affections upon. I love the brotherhood. And by brotherhood there, he's talking about the church, brothers and sisters in Jesus. And 160 times in the New Testament, 
The people who've put their faith in Jesus are called family. God wants us to see each other that way. We're family. And as family, we love each other. And don't be put off by the fact that he uses the word brotherhood. It's not excluding women. It's trying to carry the idea of familial bonds that don't necessarily have the obligations of hierarchy or the implications of romance. It's not like your father and child and I have to take care of you or romantic and I desire something from you. It's brothers. Brothers don't have to financially care for each other, but our situation has put us together. So we make the choice to care about one another. That idea that I love you as my brother is meant to carry into the family. We're connected and so I care. Uh, there's a great story in America in the early 1900s of a home, a boy's home called Boy's Town that was a place for homeless boys to find a home. These priests took them in, created a family of these once disparate kids. And within that family of kids, there was a boy that had polio and as such wore leg braces and had trouble therefore climbing stairs. And so at one point, one of the fathers rounded a corner and he saw one of the young boys as part of the home hoisting that boy with leg braces onto his back and carrying him up the stairs. And so the father stopped him and said, hey, you don't have to do that. That's not a requirement of being here. Like, are you okay? Is he hard to carry? Is, is he too heavy? And the young boy was confused by the question. He said, no, he's not heavy. He's my brother. That, that I don't even think of it in terms of obligation. It's family. And so I'm willing to take on pain for your good. We've lost much of that in American society today, but much of our military community gets it. I understand that if you're in the trenches with me, we may disagree at times. I may not even connect with your personality. You and I may not even like each other at times, but our situation has put us together and our choice is that we're brothers. And so I'll give my life to you. And there's no inconvenience I wouldn't take on because you're family. You're not heavy. You're my brother. That's how the Christians meant to feel about another Christian, that I would lay my life down for you. But now let's ask the obvious question. Why would I do that? If that's the clear command, love your brother. The truth is, why would we do that if sometimes our Christian brothers and sisters are a huge hassle? And the reality is in this particular verse, we don't get the why. But what we've seen from last week is 1 Peter 2.17. We picked that verse because it's an easy one to memorize. But it's a summary of everything he said before. And as we look back in chapter one, we're going to see Peter give us some whys and some hows of love each other. If we're called by God as a function of loving me, love the brothers. They're not too heavy. They're your brother. If I'm meant to love them that way, why would I do it? And how do I do it? If great what's only happen because of great whys, give me a great why that will compel me to lay my life down for him or for her. And then give me some pointers on how to do it well. And the reality is Peter was writing to a community that had been scattered because of persecution, was facing difficulty financially, and was internally facing some difficulty because of their disagreements about how to handle the government. That's the community that Peter was talking to. And some of you may be saying, Ben, a church that's scattered and can't meet together has financial stress and has disagreements about the government? What does that have to do with us? Just take it by faith, by the grace of God, these words spoken to this community long ago are gonna help us navigate our day to day. And we learned last week to honor everyone. And now we're gonna see why and how 
to love the brother. And so we're going to get five points in here. He's going to intersperse the wise and the house. So we'll get three wise, two house, as they move through them together. But the first two wise show up in verse 22 and verse 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I thought, that is really confusing. I don't know what any of that means. It just kind of sounds bibly, 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 love each other. You're like, okay, I don't know what that means. But in verse 22 and verse 23, they start with participles. And what a participle is, class, is it's a verb that participates in the main verb. The main verb was the command, love. And what we have is two other verbs that participate in it. They help fill out the why and the how. And so our first why, why should we love each other, is locked up in that participle in verse 22. If you want me to give you the summary, if you're taking notes, the first why we should love the brothers is because we're family. Because we're family. And in verse 22, it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth and for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now I summarize that as we're family, even though it's a little confusing, because all through this text so far, Peter's been establishing this metaphor that we're family. He's called God Father three times, said you've been born again twice, calls you a newborn baby, a child, an heir, now your brothers. He's working this imagery. We're family because of what God the Father has done through Jesus Christ. And yet if you think about it, that idea of being born into a family, it's a metaphor. So when he keeps saying you've been born again, you've been born again by the grace of Jesus, it's a metaphor. But what does being born again mean? We're like Nicodemus sitting with Jesus. How do I get right with God? What does God want from me? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, I don't think mom's gonna be up for that. Like, I don't understand the metaphor. And what you're seeing in verse 22 is Peter is explaining in very practical terms what happened when you and I were born again, when we became children as adults in the family of God. He says, having purified your souls. That word purify means to consecrate, to set apart. It means I was out here and now I've moved over here. I've been set apart into something. Positionally, I've changed. My identity has been adjusted. My role has been reversed. I've become something else. I consecrated myself. I was out in the public square. Now I'm personally in this relationship. Something shifted in me and I've never been the same. I consecrated my soul. Well, how did you do that? He says, by your obedience to the truth. You heard the truth. Someone spoke a word to you, a message, and you believed it. And not only did you believe it, you obeyed it. That's a richer word. It's not just that I intellectually assented to some facts. Yeah, I think that's true. It's that I heard them and I thought that's right. And my life changes as a result. Actually, everything about me changes. I don't just hear this word. I put myself under this word. I obey it. I don't hold this truth. This truth holds me. And so you go, well, what's the truth that changed everything about me? Well, you unpacked it in the previous verses. Knowing that you were ransomed 
from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. What's the truth you know that changed you? I know that Jesus Christ ransomed me. He saved my life. He bought me out of jeopardy. How did he do it? He didn't pay for my ransom with gold or silver. He paid for it with his blood. He bled out for me so that I could live. I read that text and I think of dinner parties. I just imagine being at a dinner party and you know, whenever you've shown up at one, inevitably you start introducing people to make connections. Someone's introducing someone to you and they always tell you who they are to them and you have a requisite emotional response. Hey, I'd like you to meet my colleague. Well, I'd be delighted to. I'd like to introduce you to my boss. Oh, okay, good to meet you. Hey, this is my sister. Oh, that's cool, you in town? But imagine being at a party and say, hey, I wanna introduce you to somebody. He saved my life. I'd be dead if it wasn't for him. I guarantee you, whatever party you're at, whatever that guy says next, this will be your most interesting anecdote all night long. I'm meeting the person who saved your life. And what Peter's saying is Jesus Christ wasn't some motivational figure that got sideways with the wrong people and ended up martyred. That what he did on earth was transactional. He lived a perfect life for me. And when he went to that cross, he was doing something for me. He lived before the foundation of the world, but he became manifest for my sake. He came here for me. He understood my sin was gonna condemn me. And so he took that condemnation on himself. He understood the punishment for sin was gonna land on me. So he stepped in front of me and he took the hit. He bled out for me. He died so I could live. He laid down his life for me. And when I understood that, that what he did on the cross purchased freedom for me, purchased family for me, did something to me. I didn't just hold that truth. It held me. I didn't just hear that truth. It changed me. It set me apart to be something new. I've had the privilege in life on a few occasions to have men and women in the military tell me about a brother who gave their life so they could live. And I've had a few rare occasions where they've handed me some memento to signify the life of that person who gave their life for them. And I tell you, the things they've handed me, on one occasion, it was, just, it was even a t-shirt with their name on it. That t-shirt was precious to me. And constitutionally, it's just a shirt, but, but what it represents, it represents that somebody loved me so much they would give everything they had so I could live. And you're handing me something that represents that? This is precious to me. I'm gonna put it in a place of honor in my house. We honor something like that. There's nothing more precious than giving your life for someone. 
And the truth we heard is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, gave his life for you and for me. And when you heard that truth and believed it, it changed you. And that's why we get baptized. And in the Old Testament, or excuse me, in the early church, they would position it as dramatically as they could. They said, it consecrates me. It changes me. When I understand he gave his life for me, they would come to that water and strip off every insignia that represented their old life. They would enter that water with the picture of I'm buried with him and I rose with him. And then they would step out wrapped in a new clothes. Everything about me changed because of him. And then when they would step out, there would be waiting on this side of the water, a whole community of people. And it was the community of people who understood what Christ had done for them. It was the community of Christ it was the family of faith. The idea was when I committed myself to him, when I rose from the water, I suddenly introduced myself to everyone else who he laid his life out for. I suddenly became a part of a band of brothers knit together because of the sacrifice of Christ. I've been consecrated by my obedience to the truth into a sincere brotherly love. What Jesus purchased was my participation in his people. I became part of a brotherhood, part of the family of those who knew what it was to have their life laid down for him. Jesus Christ, on the night he knew he was going to the cross, what's the one thing he talked about more than anything else? I want you to get along. I want you to love each other. Do you love me? Any love you feel for me, extend it to one another. When he was hanging on that cross, he looked down at his mother and one of his disciples and he said, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. With his last breath, his concern was, any care you have for me, extend to each other. The heart of our king was love each other. And when we understand that, then we know to serve him is to love us. We've been consecrated unto a sincere brotherly love. What he wants is for you to get along. For me as a dad, what I want for my kids is for them to love each other. And Jesus says, I gave my life to create in us. Now I want from us is to love us, love each other. Let it be brotherly. Let it be an affection that's familial and let it be sincere. Don't you be fake. Don't let it be marbled with resentments. Don't let it be cracked with hypocrisies. I want you to actually really love each other. I love that word sincere. It's the Latin word sincere, without cracks. It's a marketplace term talking about pottery. That if someone was going to sell pottery in the marketplace, you don't know if they might have dropped it before and cracked it. Because if they did, sometimes they would just kind of glue it back together and cover it with wax. So it would be constitutionally weaker. It would fail you when you put something in it. But they would just kind of cover it and try to sell it to you full price. And so if you were buying pottery, you would submit it to what was called the heliocrines, the, the sun test. You would hold it up to see, is this thing have integrity or is it cracked? And what you were looking for is to see if it was sincere without cracks. To be sincere basically means to have no wax in your cracks. And he says, your love is meant to be sincere, true wholehearted, from a pure heart, fully integrated, not marbled with bitterness, not colored with resentments. 
we have a pure, robust, wholehearted love for those our Savior came to redeem. We love because we're family. My little girls loved their baby brother before he was even born. They didn't know anything about him. If he'd be shy or active, play the background or grab the spotlight, all they knew is he was coming from the same parents and part of the same family. And so they loved him and they couldn't wait to meet him and welcome him into the world. Come here, baby brother. Let us show you the life our parents have built for us. That's the feeling we're supposed to have every time somebody wakes up to the grace of God and believes they don't just have a relationship with him. They have a relationship to us. Welcome to the world, baby brother. It's a pleasure to meet you, sister. Let me welcome you into the house of God. So we love because we're family. And how do we do that? We pursue the positive. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And that's the command. He's made you for the sincere brotherly love. So you own it. He gave it to you, lean into it. He purchased the family, you pursue it and pursue the positive love. And I love the way he says to do it earnestly. The word earnestly there is ektenos. It means stretched out. Don't just love with a general sentiment. I care for all God's creatures. He says, love like you're running a race and you want to win. If you're in the Olympics, you don't go, you know, I'm going to take it about three quarter speed. You are pushing every fiber and stretching out for the finish line. You may even jump. You will sell your body to cross that line. And he says, I don't want you to love half-hearted. I don't want you to say, well, propositionally, I care for all those who love Jesus. You say, no, because I love him, I love them. And that's not passive, it's active. I love earnestly. I'm looking for ways to serve. Are you looking for ways to love us? Are you waking up every day thinking, who can I text today? Who am I gonna encourage today? When you learn something from the word that challenges you, who can I share this with today? When you make a little extra money, you go, who's going to be blessed? Because I was blessed today. That's what the Christian does. They look for ways to love. I was at home on Tuesday. I got a knock on the door, opened it up. And there was a delivery guy there holding a cup of coffee and a Danish. And I took them from him. I didn't order them. And I went downstairs to get on Zoom because I had a meeting with our staff team in Atlanta and realized they were all in one room, socially distanced, but they were having coffee in a Danish and they thought, we don't want to leave Ben out. So they ordered some to be delivered in DC five minutes before our phone call. And I thought, who thinks of stuff like that? I was like, oh yeah, Louie and Shelly Giglio, because they love me and because their love prompts them to find ways to stretch out, to communicate love. And we're meant to do the same. It's one of my favorite things about our church. All through the season of coronavirus, I've heard stories of people who maybe got really physically injured or lost a loved one. And as a staff, we're thinking, okay, we got to shepherd those who are in need. And, but inevitably, as our staff moves forward and says, okay, so-and-so got hurt. Is anybody taking care of them? As we ask their door holder community, they go, oh man, yeah, when we found out about it, there's folks that have already signed up to deliver meals. There's people praying for them. There's people bringing lunch and dinner. We're coming around them, people writing notes. Oh yeah, this person's grieving. We're taking care of this in their house, whatever. People that are knit together in the family, they're there for each other when the family suffers. 
And I want to challenge you. Are you knit together with us? Do people know you? Are you a part of each other's lives? Well, if we're family, then we love earnestly. We pursue the positive from a pure heart. I love that. Pursuing the positive, he says, we do it from a pure heart. And I love that because it means love isn't just a verb. It's not just things I do out here. He says, I want that love to be inside from here. I want you to really care. And that's an internal challenge. It's interesting, a lot of his hows are really that. They're, they're not so much the external implications. It's saying, you wanna know the best way to love us? You tend to the garden of your own heart. Are you planting seeds of affections for us? See, it's interesting, we don't have time to go into all this, but the human soul, some of us go, I can't help what I love. But you actually can. What you love is more influenced by your surroundings than you realize. The food you like, the music you like, what clothing you think is cool. You've been far more culturally influenced than you want to admit. And the reality is, if you want to love us, what are you putting into your mind? What words are you soaking in? You're meant to tend to the soil of your heart to think about the fact that Christ purchased us, to think about that Christ died for that coworker, to think about that same Jesus that loves you, loves him. As you settle your mind on those realities, you feed your soul with affections for us. You're meant to love us, not just with external, external action, but internal motivation. You pursue the positive in here. I want a heart that loves so that I have a life who loves. And why do I do that? Number three, is because we're family forever. We're family forever. We're family, so we pursue the positive because we're family forever. That's what he says in verse 23. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes Old Testament text about how flesh is like grass, grass withers and dies, this seed doesn't. He says, when the seed of the word of God, that truth landed in you, it sprouted into life and what it created exists forever. The family of God exists forever. The reason we love believers with a particular kind of love is because this family goes on forever. Every other institution you're a part of will stop. Your sorority, your fraternity, your sports team, your club, your association, your job, your party, your nation, it will fall, it will fade, it will go away. This is the only institution that exists throughout eternity, is the family Jesus built. So what that means is we better get used to loving us because we're gonna see us for a really long time. It's not just until death do us part. We're together for the long haul, which means eternity. So you better start loving us now. Donna and I, these last couple of weeks, both watched vampire movies independently of each other. Interestingly, neither of them horror movies. Hers was a love story, mine was a comedy. But they had in common humor or storyline built around the reality that vampires live forever, so they're going to be around each other forever, so they better figure out how to get along. But it's the same with us. We're going to be family forever. He purchased a family that's gonna live throughout eternity. So I better figure out how to love you now because I'm gonna see you in heaven. And when we see each other, I don't wanna be like, oh yeah, 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 I really swindled him in a business deal. I mean, we've forgiven each other now, but yeah, sorry about that. 
You don't want to be like, oh my gosh, we're here together. Yeah, no, we met on a dating app and then I ghosted her. But uh, (laughs) here you are. Like, uh, we're going to want to love each other now because we're going to see each other later. We're family forever. It's an enduring family. And the same seed isn't just enduring, it's empowering. The seed of God's word is so powerful, it can produce in us this kind of love. It's a seed of the word that when it plants in us, Paul says of this word, that it is living and active at work in you believers. So when we believed this truth and it landed in us, it does change our affections. It does change our heart. It made us a family. So we pursue love earnestly. It made us a family forever. And so we lean into that. And here's number four, your next how. So we uproot the negative. If God has put in us something beautifully positive, we uproot everything negative. If he's planted in the soil of our soul, the word of truth, we uproot from our soul anything that would be anti-social. And so you get in chapter two, verse one. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. So because your family put away, have nothing to do with it, anything that would unravel community. If Jesus died to build a society, I will not pursue antisocial behavior. If he built the community, I will not unravel it. And any activity that would threaten this community, I go to war against it inside of me. And it's interesting, some of this is external, but a lot of it's internal. Tending the garden of my heart. If there's something in me that is antisocial, I pull it out. I will not entertain that which would destroy what he loves. And so he says, I get rid of malice. I get rid of malice. Malice there is the intent to do harm. That's not an external act. That's in here. That says, if I love Jesus and he wants me to love them, then I will not harbor in my soul any intent to hurt you. And I love that metaphor, gardening the heart of our soul. It's, I won't let a root of bitterness grow because I know bitterness will cause distance in a relationship. So if I feel bitter against you, I need to uproot it. I will not let resentment harbor in my soul. The best way to love us is to tend to my own soul. And if bitterness wants to harbor there, hey, you hurt me, so I'm gonna hold on to bitterness. That's antisocial. Regardless of what you did, I'll become part of the problem if I harbor bitterness. So out of love for you, I will not hold on to malice. I will not feed malcontent. I'll let it go. I love that verb harbor, to harbor bitterness, because it pulls up the picture of a harbor. What's a harbor? It's, It's where a boat comes into dock to find port and to rest. And maybe it throws out a rope and tethers itself so we can linger there. If someone hurt me in the church and inevitably we'll hurt each other, I'm not gonna harbor malice. I'm not gonna let it pull up into my heart, throw out a rope and I gather it and do say, they did hurt you. They were rude. I'm not gonna invite malice off the boat to come sit and eat crab legs with me. I won't harbor bitterness. If I feel bitterness trying to come and harbor in my soul, I'm gonna tell it, you can't be here. It throws me the rope, I'm throwing it back. It tries to come in, I'm kicking the boat out. That the way I love you 
is tending to the soil of my own heart and I won't let malice stay in here. I won't let it grow because it'll turn into deceit. Deceit is an intent to mislead that I would suddenly start to amend data. I'll leave out facts that don't fit my predetermined narrative. I'll put in facts and assume motives that fit my predetermined narrative. That's basically all of the internet right now. But it's also the way we treat each other sometimes. If someone hurt your feelings and you harbor malice, you may say, they always do that. And then you may try to believe things you can't know. Their motive is they don't care about me. They just care about them. This church is fake. These people are not by, and you begin to believe things that aren't true. And so then maybe when you talk to people, you say things like, oh, that person doesn't care about us. You don't know how they feel. You're assuming something you can't know. Or maybe you meet somebody and they hurt your feelings. And so when you're talking to them, you amend certain data you share with them. You don't tell them all the facts about a situation. You, you lie, you deceive. It's interesting, the book of Proverbs calls lying the opposite of love. If I love you, I want the truth for you. Why? Because the truth helps you orient to reality. So if I hold back to you, from you some facts about reality, I keep you from being able to progress. So if you hurt my feelings and I don't tell you, I just harbor bitterness. Maybe I slander you to others. I keep you from being able to repent and repair a relationship. I disadvantage you. You might've hurt me initially, but my choice to deceive you and harbor resentment, now I've become a cancer in the church. And Peter here is saying, you wanna love us? You pursue the positive and you uproot the negative. There's gonna be some sinister desires in you that will lead to just some deceptive practices outside of you. We don't do that here. We speak the truth and love. I can tell someone, hey, when you said this, it hurt me. And I'm telling you this not to make you feel bad, but because I value the relationship enough, I don't want this bitterness to become a root that grows into a tree that begins to separate us. I wanna get past it so we can heal and the bonds of family can grow stronger. Love will lead me into hard conversations for the sake of the community Christ purchased. I don't harbor malice. I don't deceive. I don't have hypocrisy. That's not, I'm not gonna be fake. I'm not gonna play like things are fine when they're really not. I'm gonna not act like I love you when I really despise you. I'm not going to envy you or slander you. Slander means I'm talking nice about you to your face, but then I'm ripping you to other people. And I gotta tell you, church, this worries me because I see this. Someone sees someone post something online and rather than calling that person or reaching out and saying, hey man, when you said that, it hurt my feelings, what do we do? We tell 10 other people, hey, did you see what so-and-so did? Did you see that? And maybe what they said was wrong. But what you're choosing to do is slander them to 10 other people. What are you doing? You are sowing disunity into a community God built unity in. You have now become a problem. You've become cancer in the body. We don't do that. Out of love for him, we love us. And that means you uproot slander which means you uproot envy. That's another one. Envy is I want what you have and I resent you for having it. You got more friends than me, so I don't like you. You got more followers than me, so I resent you. Envy is a dangerous thing. And so he says, we don't envy. He doesn't tell us how to not envy. Can I just tell you real quick, we don't have time to get into this too far, but 
For me, I found prayer helps with not envying. And by that, I don't mean praying that God would smite them or take away the things that make them special. I mean, when I envy somebody, I pray that God would bless their devotional time with him, bless their life, bless their marriage, bless their relationships, because I found it's hard to envy someone and bless them at the same time. And I realized if I let envy fester in my soul, it becomes a wound that can hurt the whole body. And so for me, I put the ointment of prayer over it. I take that bitter root of envy and I rip it out so it won't affect how I treat you. And let me just say this, because some of y'all out here maybe need to hear it. If someone's activity on social media is hurting your feelings, you need to pray before you post. And I would say pray before you post. We need to pray for each other and then seek what's the most redemptive way to love each other. I'm gonna uproot negativity. I'm gonna pursue positivity. Why? Here's the last reason. Because we're the place they meet God. Because we are the home they come home to. That's his last motivation. Why do we love the brotherhood so much? Well, Christ died so we're family and we're family forever. So we pursue it positively and uproot negativity. But ultimately what he says here is when we love like this, it will make other people wanna join us. And he wants other people to join us because he wants them to know him. And the way they will know him is when they see him in us. We are the home they come home to. Peter switches metaphors and he says, you put all this away because you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight chosen and precious. And you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, the reason why we love each other is when Christ laid down his life, when we come to faith, we're like stones he stacks together and our love is a mortar that holds each other together. And the more we stack up as a loving house, we become this monument, but not just a monument to Jesus. He says, we become a temple of worship to Jesus not a physical building, but our relational love. And it's a temple that's meant to be a priesthood. What did priests do? They helped others connect to God. He says, what happens is as we love each other, we become a house that they come home to. We become a priesthood that reaches out to them that says, come in here and see what we found. And no one wants to join a community that's rude. No one wants to be at a party that's lame. No one wants to join a family that's mean to each other all the time. So Jesus says very practically, love each other. Why? So that they'll see my love for them. If you can't do it for the sake of each other, do it for the sake of the lost. Do it for the sake of the people who are trying to find life in so many broken, empty, vacant places. And right now are desperately rowing in their boats in the dark, looking for a lighthouse to come home. Be that light, be the city on the hill by loving each other. They'll know it. They'll know we'll belong to him by the way we treat us. And when we love well, they'll wanna come and see what we found. I love it here. We call volunteers, if you don't know Passion City well, we call them door holders, because it's a metaphor. We hold the door open to invite you in to meet the God who changed us. That's what Peter's talking about. And when we met in person back pre-corona times, our first gathering would be at 10 o'clock, but our door holders would show up at around 5 a.m., the first ones. 
and they'd start cleaning up the Howard Theater from the party the night before. They'd get scent machines out to make it smell nice. They'd put up signage so that people would know where they were going. We cleaned up the sidewalk out front in the parking lot so it would be clean and pristine. They'd put on vests and stand in street corners so that people would know where to park, where to go to come in the building. They would greet people and say hi. And if you didn't know anyone, they'd walk you to a seat and introduce you to some people, get you some coffee. We loved people. And our church grew so fast. We've grown so fast. You know why? Not because of the physical building of Howard, as cool as a building it is, but because of the spiritual building of our love. And many a people have come to me and said, I want to be a part of what's happening here. I see the way you love each other. Why is it like this? And you say, you know why you, we love each other? Because we're built on the foundation of Jesus Christ who gave all for us. He purchased us into a sincere brotherly love. So we love each other earnestly. Last story, we had a Sunday where the Howard Theater was closed down. It, we showed up for church, but the AC had broke. It was 90 degrees in the building. You can't pack hundreds of people into a building that hot safely. So suddenly on the fly, we realized we can't meet church is coming, people are coming, but we can't meet. So we thought, you know what? Any money we were going to spend inside the venue on lights and sound, let's quickly send door holders out to buy every cup of coffee and every donut they can find at this hour. And we're turning this into a block party. And as people showed up to church, church was happening on the sidewalk and the street and the little lot across the street, just people handing out coffee, handing out donuts, meeting the neighbors, meeting the neighborhood, saying we couldn't meet in there, but that doesn't stop the church. The building shut down, but the church never shuts down. And I'll never forget, there was a guy talking to me and he was on his bicycle. He was sitting on a bike and he said, you know, man, he said, I live in this neighborhood. I know y'all were going in there week in and week out. I saw you go in that building. I knew you were a church. He said, but I didn't care what you were doing in there. He said, but seeing you out here like this today, y'all just came out here. Y'all didn't have to. Someone's handing me something to drink. Someone's handing me something to eat. Y'all being kind to everybody. He said, now I want to come. Now I want to come in there. And that's the point. When they see the way we love, they want what we have. And Jesus says, look, I gave my life for them. I gave my life for every person that you've set your eyes on. And you know the way they're gonna see me? Through you. You know how they're gonna know I love them? By the way you love each other. The way the world will come to know the Savior is through our sacrificial love for each other. We are the house they come home to. We are the family they're meant to belong. So I wanna encourage us, church, let's love each other. Let's forgive each other. Let's speak the truth to each other in love. If there's bitterness, let's uproot it. If there's resentment, let's go to war against it. If there's an opportunity to serve, let's take advantage of it. Let's be actively loving for the sake of each other and for the sake of the world. Let's show them a better way because the best of all ways was shown to us. That's the church. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, he's what we're selling. He's the one who gave all so we could live. He's the one who died so we could become family. All of our hope 
is in the God who resurrected that God-man. And all of this effort to pull off this gathering today and whoever invited you to be a part of it, the reason we did is so that you would know the Jesus who loves us so well. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.